Well, you've heard it three or four times already this morning. Someone say he is risen. And you said, mm. you know, my daddy called again this morning, bright and early, said the same thing. And I said, this changes everything. It's not the answer he was looking for. He wanted to hear he is risen indeed. Boy, we come to the end of a, a brief series of messages on the death of God in this morning. I want to talk about the death of death in the life of God. That all right? This past week, we commemorated 20 years since Columbine. Some of you are old enough to remember where you were when you heard the news. In a high school in the state of Colorado, one morning, 13 people lost their lives at the hands of two classmates who went on a rampage and in the end killed themselves. Maybe you, like me, looked at the news and you felt a subtle turning in the nation. Up to this point, most people died individually. They didn't die in groups. Or if they did, it was generally through a tragic accident or it was generally in war. It was not in a public school. But here, things had turned. Here, most of the victims died at the hands of people who didn't even know them. And I remember feeling that something had changed. Four years earlier, in 1995, John Paul II had released a 188-page encyclical called The Gospel of Life. And in that, he referred to the present culture as the culture of death. Now it seemed in our own country as if his words were prophetic and it had un been unleashed in our society. But as the news began to come out in the wake of that tragedy, it seemed like there was another narrative taking place. There were pockets of communities meeting all over the country and doing things to symbolize the rising of life. Greg Zanus, is a carpenter in Illinois, spent the entire night driving to Colorado so he could be there and erect 15 wooden crosses on a berm just outside the school, including two crosses for the killers. Have you ever wondered why it is people put crosses in places where somebody has died? A cross was the equivalent to a first century noose. It was an instrument of execution and it was a symbol of imperial authority over a small minority of people. Everyone died, but only a few died like this. And to die like this 
marked the character of the person impaled upon it. Crosses were not a bleeding out. They were a hanging. So why would you put a cross on a site where someone has died? Why would you not put something else like a tombstone uh, or even a tomb with the stone rolled away? There are lots of reasons for this probably, but one of them, I think, is that in the midst of our tragedy, we are looking for hope. We're trying to identify the tragedy with a story that is larger than the tragedy. We're looking, if you will, for another narrative to explain all the chaos. What we're looking for is Easter. Whether we can say it or not, but we symbolize that with a cross. I want to argue this morning, nothing could be more appropriate. Told one way, the gospel is an epic battle between life and death. All of the characters, all of the stories, all of the festivals and holy days, all of the miracles, all of the parables, all the heroes and the villains, even God and the devil themselves take place within a story of a struggle between life and death. Can I tell it to you? It's going to lead to a baptism. In the beginning, when God created the world, there was only life. There was no place for death. It did not belong. God said, let the plants grow vegetation. Let the seas teem with living creatures. Let them reproduce after their kind. And then he stepped back and all of this happened. All of it, life. And he looked at it and said, that's good. Then when he created uh, us, he made us from the ground and then he breathed into us the breath of life and we became living souls like unto God himself. But there in the Garden of Eden was already the threat of death. Because what he said is, you may eat from any tree that is in the Garden of Eden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the day you eat of it. You'll die. There in a world of life is the threat of death. What I want to point out from the very beginning is that God's first prohibition does not come as a command. It comes as a warning. God is not saying, if you eat this fruit, I'll kill you. He's saying, if you eat this fruit, you'll die. That's another kind of warning. When Nick was... uh, a boy, uh, just a child, two years old. I, he got into everything. Have you had boys? 
everything is an experiment and all the world is safe. They don't understand. I'm walking down the hallway and I see him sitting in the hallway with a pair of scissors in his hand, getting ready to cut through an electrical cord of a fan that's plugged into the wall. <laughs> this was not time for lecture on electricity. I simply reached down and grabbed his hand and said, give me the scissors and back away from the fan. <laughs> For in the day you cut it, you will surely die. <laughs> now, understand, I'm not telling him, you cut that cord, I'm going to be so mad, I'm going to kill you. I'm saying... If you cut that cord, the consequence is built into the act. Your problem, son, is not going to be your rebellion and my anger. The problem is going to be your foolishness. In the day you eat of it, you'll die. The consequence is built into the act. So from the moment they eat the fruit, death begins to happen. Not all at once, but it releases its powers in the world. Shame, they went and hid themselves. Fear, I was afraid because I heard you in the garden. Alienation, that woman <laughs> that you put here with me. Chaos. Thorns and thistles will come from the ground, even old age. <laughs> oh, do you hear me in back? And finally, death itself. Now, can I say one more time, all of these things happen not because of the wrath of God, but because of the consequence. The consequence is built into the act. Our problem is not our sin and God's anger when you tell the gospel like this. Our problem is our foolishness and God's absence. For when he kicks us out of the garden, we're separate from him. And since there is no life apart from God, we die. Adam and Eve have a boy named Cain, and you can tell this is the first service. You know these stories. <laughs> One day, Cain is angry that his brother's offering has been accepted and his own has not, and he becomes agitated and visibly frustrated by this until God himself notices and approaches Cain and what he says to him is prophetic. He says, why are you so angry? If you do what is 
well, if you do what is acceptable, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, wait for it. Sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. You must master it. The emphasis in the Cain and God dialogue is not on Cain as a constitutional sinner. The emphasis is on the choice that he is given in that moment to make between what is well and not well. Like his daddy before him, God confronts him with an option and the consequences built into the choice. If you choose well, the consequences, you will be accepted. If you can't, then the consequences is that sin will have you. Son, you'll not only have it, it'll have you. You'll start reproducing it like a virus all on your own. Given the same choice, Cain chooses wrongly and goes out that day and probably with a stone. He not only suffers the consequence of his decision, which is death, he inflicts the consequence of his decision onto someone else. Now the world has turned again. Three generations later, when Cain's great-great-grandson Lamech gets injured by a man, he turns and kills him instantly. In the following verse, a young man approaches him and injures him, and he kills him in response. And then he goes home and brags about it to his wives, plural. Now it seems like death has crept into the story and taken over the world, infecting not only the actions, but the dispositions of people. So they're generating it now. They're not just suffering underneath it. In fact, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 5, it's a long genealogy of people you've never heard of, and every verse ends the same. And he died. Told in this way, all the stories of the Bible start to fall into the wake of this conflict between life and death. Even the law of Moses itself fits in this story. For God said through Moses, I put before you life and prosperity, death and destruction. If you do what is right, you will live. But if you do what is wrong, you will die. Choose life. Boy, I can hear it this morning. Choose life so that you and your children may live, but they are unable to choose life. It is in them. Death is in them, and it's reproducing themselves. And without even trying, they choose death. They never understand why. Like people today, They'll make decisions that are consistent with death and then feel that life was ganging up on them. This is not wrath. This is consequences built into the act. You still there? You say, do this Easter. 
But every now and then, God blesses a person with the ability to look further than their eyes can see. And when they do, they often see in the distance a spark of life. Nobody else sees it. It's like they lit a candle in a world that is pitch black. But you can see it. It's getting closer. And so the prophet Isaiah would write 750 years before Jesus ever came around to those that are living in the land of the shadow of death. I see a light. A light has dawned. Someone has turned on the light. And there will be life. Ezekiel went into a valley where all the bones from dead people in the past were lying around. And the Lord said to him, step into that valley and speak to these bones. <laughs> and he did it. And when he did it, you guys, the Bible says something like the breath. My goodness, it was the same breath that breathed into us the breath of life. It came across that valley, and in the words of Ezekiel, those bones stood up and danced like a vast army. It was as if God was coming into a valley that was absorbed in death with the threat of life. When Jesus came into this world, it was the Garden of Eden in reverse. While Eden took us from life to death, Jesus would take us from death back to life. In him was life, and that life was like the light of men. He came into a world that was only death, where life did not belong and was not welcome. In fact, it was a world where everyone like Adam suffered the consequences of death and some people like Cain inflicted the consequences of death. And so on the night Jesus was born, there was already a plot to wipe him out. Herod called for the death of every child under the age of two, and life ran into Egypt to get away from it. Neither Herod nor Rome, neither Joseph, Mary, nor Israel knew that they were taking part in a story that was much larger than them. One of them just wanted to kill and the other one just wanted to live. And so when Jesus got older and was no longer at the mercy of his parents, he began to leak life into a world that was dead. He cast the demons out of a man as he was coming from the tombs in the cemetery. Did you miss that? And when he saw Jairus' daughter laying dead on the bed, and when he saw Lazarus behind the stone in the tomb, he stepped forward and he spoke, wait for it, he spoke to people that were dead and they were gone. And he 
spoke to them and they heard him. No one who is dead has ever heard anyone living, but they heard him. It was as if he had his arms around both places, the land of the living and the land of the dead. And when he spoke to the dead, the living could hear him. And when he spoke to the living, the dead responded. So whether he said to Jairus' daughter, little girl, I tell you, get up and dance. That's my translation. She got up and danced. Now Wesleyan. <laughs> and when he said to Lazarus, come forth, come out, literally exit. <laughs> he left. So that Easter morning, when Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, she is surrounded by a culture of death. She knows who is in power. She knows how this happened. And she knows what has happened. And she thinks she understands. In fact, John tells us, the only one to tell us, Mary Magdalene came while it was still dark. And when she gets there, she believes that he is dead and gone. She says it three times. They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. And she is overwhelmed with her grief. We're told that four times. She's the only character in all four Gospels to weep at the tomb. She is so blinded by her grief, she cannot see that something else is happening. The angel says to her, Mary, why are you crying? Now that is a dumb question. <laughs> at a funeral. At a funeral. But if this ain't a funeral, you see this? Mary and the angels are looking at the same set of facts. And her conclusion is, he can only have been stolen. And their conclusion is, he must be alive. But she can't hear it. They want to say to her, Mary, he is not dead, he's alive. And he is not gone. Fact. He's right behind you. She turns around and there's Jesus. Wait for it. She does not recognize him. We don't know whether his appearance has changed or whether she is just blinded by her grief. We don't know. But what we do know is that when he says her name, she recognizes him. Let me say it differently. 
She didn't recognize him because she saw him. She recognized his voice. When she heard his voice, only one man in this world, only one man in this world has ever called my name like that. He says, Mary. She falls at his feet and goes to hold on to him. And the first thing he says is, don't touch me. (laughs) Thomas can, anything he wants. Then he says, why? He says, don't touch me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. Who? Father. No, no. Wait for it. Go and tell the disciples. Did you hear that right? The first apostle is a woman from whom he cast out seven demons. She is an apostle to the apostles. Go and tell the apostles, the big boys, that I am ascending to my father, wait for it, and your father, to my God and your God. What have I told you? I'll wrap it up. What you've learned today is that death has come into this world through one person, but not as a punishment. It's come as a consequence that was built into the act. Listen closely. When I tell the story like this, our problem is not just sin, and so we need more than forgiveness. Not even the sacrificial death of someone on a cross is going to eradicate the problem because the problem is not just between us and God. It is in us and it is death. And since there is no life apart from God, You can't have it, not because he won't give it to you, but because it isn't there, people. Eternal life is not something you get from God. It is God himself. And if we cannot be in union with Christ, we do not have life. If you could find someone who was God and yet human, who would willingly go into the heart of death and die like any human dies. And yet, because he is God, once he is in the belly of it, to detonate life. Yeah, yeah. If you could find someone with two natures, not one, who would release life in the forbidden land of death, 
well, then you'd have a savior. Oh, church, I got news for you this morning. You got a savior and maybe you don't know it. Like Mary, we are surrounded by a culture of death. We see it in terrors and in wars and in suicides. We see it in abortion. We see it in violence on the street. We see the alienation and the shame and the fear and the chaos. We feel the process of aging. And it just looks to us like it did to Mary that morning, like we know exactly what is happening. There's only one explanation for this. But I hear the angel saying, why? Are you mourning? Why are you crying? There is another set of things happening that you know nothing about. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And Jesus is not gone. In fact, he is standing right behind you. You will not recognize him by your eyes. You'll recognize him when you hear his voice. It will resonate with something deep inside of you and it will come alive. We have one who went in to the belly of death and it was death that died. Every time, every time we live the practices of Jesus, life wins in a culture that is absorbed with death that runs from it, that inflicts it on one another, life still wins. Whenever an individual turns and surrenders their heart to Jesus Christ, who is the life, life wins. Whenever a preacher gets a spark and a church catches fire, <laughs> life wins. Whenever we reconcile with our enemies, Whenever we keep our promises, whenever we welcome the stranger, whenever we give to those who cannot pay us back, whenever we pray for those who persecute us, life wins. Whenever we accept one another and encourage one another and teach and admonish one another and when we confess to one another and we genuinely forgive one another and when we serve one another, when we carry one another, when we pray for one another, when we love one another, life wins. Whenever there's a funeral in this room, Oh, we've had too many, it seems. And we bring the casket and we place it in front of an altar with a cross directly behind us. Christians, do you not know? Nobody before the Christians ever brought their dead before God. But we bring them before God because in the cross, Death has died and life wins. And so every time we stick a cross in the ground where someone has died, we proclaim not the death of hope, not the death of a human being, and certainly not the death of God. We proclaim the death of death itself. It has swallowed him whole and death has died. Glory be to God, church. Somebody say amen. 
thanks be to God who has given you a new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of the Jesus Christ and in inheritance into that hope that is unblemished, unspoiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. Therefore, set your heart on things above and set your minds on things above, not on things below. For remember, when you were baptized, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And one day when Christ, who is your life, shall appear, you also will appear with him in glory.